Welcome to Joker Men. This is Evan. This is Ian. And today it's Joker Men at the movies. Once again. And we're going to be joined uh, by Will Sloan from the Important Cinema Club, one of the great movie podcasts. Also, uh, you might know him from Michael and Us, another great uh, sometimes movie podcast. But the the point is, we're at the we're at the freaking movies. We love it, folks. To talk about uh, a real humdinger of a picture, a real movie. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Uh, the great masked and anonymous uh, from two thousand three. Get your raisinets and stick around. Thank you. That's a beautiful introduction, and uh, I, I especially wanted to be on this podcast when you told me that our mutual friend Matt Farley was on recently. Oh yes, you know he he's he's like our biggest fan. <laughs> Well, where Matt goes, I follow. I mean that that guy. That's the that guy is the Dylan of the new millennium. He's a real genius. I should say we're also his biggest fan uh, <laughs> collectively. I think three of the biggest uh, Matt Farley heads in the world <laughs> right here. Yes. Yeah, listen to the the new Finkelstinks record. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he's done it again. Sweetheart deal. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, genuine rock and roll music, and it's just as good as Shot of Love. <laughs> Well, thank you for coming on, Will. Um, before we uh, dive in and, and start cutting it up about the movie, uh, you know, this is ostensibly a Bob Dylan podcast. So do you, are you much of a, a Bob fan yourself just in terms of the music? Oh yeah, huge fan. I mean, I should say up front that I'm not very good at talking about music. I don't I don't know how to articulate what's good and bad about music. My, Neither are we yeah. for the record. Okay, good, good. Uh, but I do appreciate Bob Dylan a lot. I especially love late period Bob Dylan, which, yes, which on, yeah, which on certain days I prefer even to the golden age. You know, oh, I really, I definitely feel the same way, honestly. What are some of your uh, late period faves? You know, I love modern times. Um, again, uh, it, it, it feels like, feels like heresy to say this, but on some days that's my favorite Dylan album. You know, it, that's like what everyone has, you know, everyone has one where it's like, well, maybe this is weird, but and then, like for me, it's Tempest. For uh, mm. for for Ian, it's the soundtrack to Masked and Anonymous. And uh, <laughs> you know, everybody has a sort of closet favorite. Have you guys been to see him live? I, I've seen him twice. I've seen him once. Yeah, yeah I, I've seen him four times over the years. Jesus, and, and each time it got progressively better because I remember the first time. He, I was, I was like in, in a wing at the side and he stood in one position the whole time with a big cowboy hat on, not Mm -hmm. moving, not looking at the audience at all. And, you know, of course, of course, you know, I didn't know what I was in for. So he had like two songs that everybody knows and then mm-hmm, and, right. and they were barely recognizable. And then <laughs> the rest of it was, you know, more recent stuff. So I, I saw a little bit of the side of his face and a lot of songs I didn't know. Um, and I think at the time I just kind of chalked it up to, well, you know, that that's Bob, right? Uh, just, right. just gotta, just gotta hand it to him. But each time it's gotten a little bit better. And each time I've come to appreciate his late period eccentricities more like in later concerts, he would move yeah. more. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was three dimensions. Yeah. He's absolutely at the height of his powers now, as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a shame we can't see him perform the new record live, but, uh, hopefully mm-hmm. sooner rather than later. Yeah. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. But maybe, um, 
we could kind of segue here into the the way that this movie came about has to do with uh, the touring life of Bob Dylan. Um, I don't know if you know much about the background of this film and the, its production, Will. What I saw is that, I don't know how it came from this, but apparently he was a big Jerry Lewis fan. Well, this is something I wanted to get you on for uh, also. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I don't, frankly, I don't see it in the finished product because as we know, (laughs) Jerry Lewis is a very kind of extroverted screen presence and Bob Dylan, uh, a rather inert screen presence, (laughs) I think. You wouldn't say this is an extroverted presence? (laughs) No. The thing that happened apparently was that Larry Charles, the director, uh, and Bob had this meeting. Larry Charles of Seinfeld fame, of course. And 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 Borat fame. And Mm -hmm. Curb and everything. And uh, Religulous. Yeah. (laughs) Jesus. Can't forget that one. Yeah, uh, I wish. So they met at Bob's um, Santa Monica boxing studio, which is also connected to a coffee shop, as you do. And basically, Bob Dylan, yeah, had been like a, obsessed with Jerry Lewis films on his tour bus. He was just like tr- churning through all of them. And it's very funny just to imagine this, uh, first of all, of just Dylan watching um, uh, Smorgasbord uh, <laughs> on like just somewhere in the middle of Kansas, like. On yeah. his tour bus. I can't imagine him actually like laughing at it. Like I, I imagine him completely stone faced watching Jerry yeah. Lewis get up to all his antics. Yeah. Well, it's hard to imagine Bob Dylan just like living a life. It's hard to imagine him like cutting his toenails or going to the bathroom right. or just do it, do, doing any normal thing that a normal person would do. You kind of imagine him like going into a cryogenic chamber between concerts. Um, so to hear him do a normal thing like, you know, watching a comedy movie and laughing at it, just that blows my mind. He does like weird things even when he's doing normal things. Like in the story that Larry Charles tells about their meeting, they sit it down and, and the assistant comes by and asks if they want anything to drink. Bob says, uh, I want something hot. I want a hot beverage. When Larry Charles orders an iced coffee and they bring the two drinks, he drinks the iced coffee. Bob drinks Larry's iced coffee until it's almost gone. <laughs> and then uh, apparently he was like, um, after a while, like to Larry, like, you haven't even touched your drink. And he says, you're drinking my drink. And then they both kind of chuckled and this broke the ice. <laughs> Bob Dylan then produces a box uh, full of scraps of paper from is stationary from different hotels around the world. And it's just little random missives and names and stuff. And he just says to Larry, like, I don't know what to do with this. And Larry just uh, goes, well, you can, this is a character and here's a line, a dialogue. And then the, the rest of the, the the film, a lot of it came out of this. And you can't even tell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's very funny. Yeah, I mean, there's a famous story about Marlon Brando making The Island of Dr. Moreau. There's a scene where he's got, a, he's got an ice bucket on his head, and apparently it came about because he just said to everyone, he, he, he just said, I think my character should have an ice bucket on, on my head. And he whispered to somebody, they're not even going to stop me from doing this. You know, <laughs> like, like, I, I, I feel that there's probably a lot of that going on during the production of this movie. Yeah, that's what real star power gets you. You just you don't have to answer to anyone. You can put an ice bucket on your head. You can name your character Jack Fate. Or you know, t- it Tom doesn't matter. <laughs> well, uh, to just close out the um, origin story here, they end up going to HBO 
because this is me- meant to originally be a Jerry Lewis type slapstick comedy television series on HBO mm-hmm. starring Bob Dylan. Oh man, what could have been? Yeah, basically, Larry Charles says, you know, if if you come with me, they'll they'll say yes. They're not going to have the nerve to like shoot this project down in front of you. So they go there, they go to the studios and um, the producer they're meeting with um, says something to him about like Woodstock. Yeah, he said that he had, he, he had like commemorative tickets to Woodstock. And Bob just goes, I didn't play Woodstock. And then tur- <laughs> turns around and faces the window with their, his back turned for the entire meeting. But they end up buying it anyway. Bob is wearing like a full length black uh, leather duster, by the way. Um, they're in the elevator going down, you know, really excited that they sold the project. And then Bob says, I don't want to do it. It's, it's too slapsticky. <laughs> Unbelievable. Holy shit. And then, uh, <laughs> this ca- came about this film, which is, uh, you know, a dramatic film. I guess. Not too, uh, not too slapsticky. Well, I'm impressed that Larry Charles stuck with him, uh, e- even after that. Uh, fiasco, which I guess just shows how much Dylan must mean to him and mu- must mean to all of us that he could get away with that. Truly. Yeah. Uh, can, can I ask you guys, uh, did, did you like the movie? Do you enjoy the movie? Like unironically? Yes. Unquestionably. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'd never seen it before. Um, and yeah, I think that I'd maybe been influenced by some really negative reviews just about what I thought it would be like, but, uh, I was surprised at how, relentlessly um strange it was which kept it from feeling dull at least in a lot of ways and i respect it (laughs) yeah i I saw it maybe 10 years ago and i think back then i was like kind of with the consensus that it was bad you know a train wreck right uh but on this viewing wow i i really enjoyed it and i mean i still think it is kind of bad in a lot of ways (laughs) for sure but but like, would you would you change anything about it? Aren't you just glad that this exists? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would change. Certain, yes, I would change things. <laughs> All right, our first disagreement. <laughs> the Ed the Ed Harris character, perhaps. Oh no, no, I would I would have more of him. I would actually give him a bigger part. Uh, yeah. No, I I think that there's um, just maybe some just jumbling stuff around. I, f- I have the feeling like there was so much on the cutting room floor. Like you could have made several different versions of this movie right. uh, that would have been pretty different just out of like scraps that, you know, maybe were left behind. But yeah, basically on the whole, I think, no, it's, it's, it's good. It's a good stuff. And um, there's a lot to like about it. And a lot to uh, chat about. What one thing I particularly love is uh, I'm a big, I'm a native Angelino. I'm a big kind of Los Angeles movies guy. Obviously, you know, Los Angeles plays itself is uh, one of my favorites and stuff. So I'm always like kind of uh, interested in movies that are set in Los Angeles and like have a particular vision of it. And I think this one has like a really arresting and interesting kind of portrait of a city that I don't even think they say is Los Angeles. You can tell obviously based on the landmarks and some of the street names and stuff, but. It's uh, it's a really kind of uh, dreamlike, but also in some ways like super realistic and legitimate portrait of like what the city is like, even more more so more relevant today than it would have been in 2003. That was one of the things that struck me most, I think, is like it seems so much more relevant in 2021 than it would have been in, in 2003. Well, yeah, there's an there's an air of kind of like defeat in it. 
uh, this this quality of like, well, well, I mean, it definitely feels like more of a product of like a post recession, uh, post Iraq mm-hmm. War, exactly. po- post post all that disillusionment, post Obama era than it than it does necessarily coming after the kind of go go Clinton nineties, right? Yeah. Uh, in a lot of ways, um, I actually found this movie to have a similar tone or similar execution to um, the Naked Lunch uh, film, the mm-hmm. Cronenberg movie, which uh, is similarly, you know, like an adaptation of basically impossible, impossible to adapt material um, that features in that movie. It's like interzone is sort of this strange um dream vision of tangiers and and this is just like that but los angeles right alternately it's also a little bit like bob dylan's version of children of men where instead of (laughs) clive owen having to like save the pregnant woman it's bob dylan has to put on a show for some reason on a show has to play one song but it has this sort of yeah, like post-apocalyptic, post-recession, post-bad things, just kind of dusty, shitty vibes. Yeah. While we're comparing it to movies, I actually thought a lot about In- Inland Empire because it feels like <laughs> yeah. uh, a, a State of the Union of Bob Dylan's subconscious. Right. Where it's like it's the dream version of Bob Dylan's career, and actually. Uh, Ian, what you were saying about it being a Los Angeles movie kind of uh, fuels that interpretation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like I, you know, uh, obviously describing things as Lynchian is like way, uh, way, way yeah. uh, over, overdone, uh, overdone, yeah. especially as we've seen with fucking WandaVision these days. <laughs> um, but um, that, that, like you, there's almost like, you know, there, there, there is like an uncanny sense to this movie. Um, right down to like the the Dylan character Jack Fate, who exists as like this doppelganger, doppelganger like Black Lodge version of Bob, mm-hmm. where he is him in some ways, but isn't in other ways. You know, um, I don't know. It's a really weird movie. I guess maybe we should, for the listeners who haven't seen this masterpiece, give a brief recitation of what little plot there is. Right? Yeah. 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 So uh, I mean, <clears throat> basically, uh, the movie is set in this unnamed city, which, like we said, is Los Angeles. Uh, at some point, some point, you know, now-ish, uh, after there's been some sort of, um, uh, like, catastrophic civil war um, or collapse in the government, um, and um, and so the world or the states are kind of torn apart, uh, and uh, and so it's, it's Bob's responsibility, or Bob is drafted, pulled out of prison, in fact, um, by John Goodman, who plays uh, the, <laughs> the, the great uh, Uncle Sweetheart, um, to perform a benefit concert to do something, I guess, right? Like to raise <laughs> yeah. money for people who are injured or something. Um, but it's clear throughout that this benefit concert is really kind of a sham. It, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It just exists to line his pockets. Um, and uh, and that's about the extent of the plot. Uh, but, the, well, the, uh, yeah, he, he's got to get some like headlining yeah, act. Yeah, it's and, to, right. to line his pockets or, or just to buy some time for some, it's kind of vague, but it seems like they're staving off some kind of uh, trouble with the, the powers that be by putting this concert on. Right. And so the most of the movie revolves around them trying to put this concert on um, and also Bob just kind of wandering around uh, uh, being silent and letting people talk to him uh, and looking at them with squinted eyes. Uh, there's also a, a sort of a B plot or, or subplot of the dying president of whatever 
um, uh, uh, country exists at this point is Bob's father. Yeah. Somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, and then the movie obviously crescendos with this benefit concert performance. uh, But uh, but things things go awry uh, there at the end. So we can kind of save that for a second. Yeah. And Bob Dylan is Jack Fate, who is, again, the dream world version of Bob Dylan. And, you know, the, the benefit concert, they can't get Springsteen, they can't get McCartney, right. uh, but but they can get, you know, he he's both like uh, a, a more a more real version of Bob. Uh, and he's also a more washed up version of Bob, if that mm-hmm, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like like he's a guy they, they find him in a prison where. You know, he's he's being held for some crime that they don't specify. So, like, unlike Bob Dylan, who has always, you know, come from a certain amount of uh, privilege and has always lived a fairly pampered life, like, this this is the version of Bob mm-hmm. Dylan that's actually out there. You know, he's a, he's a real troubadour. He's right. behind bars. Um, yeah, the version yeah. that he plays in his songs. Yeah. Or has yeah. played in sort some of, of his songs. Legendary bluesman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which apparently it seems, you know, that's where Bob Dylan is mentally anyway, even if he is living on like a giant compound in Malibu. Yeah, he is a legendary bluesman in his mind, although uh, one thing to note uh, in this movie is he is done up in the finest of, uh, of Western wear yeah, the entire time. he looks terrific. Time. He looks absolutely incredible. The costuming in general for this entire movie is one of the strongest elements, I think. I agree, yeah. Well, as, as an actor, Bob Dylan is uh, very bad. I think it's fair to say. I mean, I no. I love I love his performance in this movie. There's nothing else like it. Whenever he's on screen, you kind of can't take your eyes off him. But wow, I mean, he looks like <laughs> an emaciated Vincent Price, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, yeah. He has that little mustache uh, going, like on Ooh. the cover of Love and Theft. Um, yeah, and he looks I'm, he looks about the size of Prince. Like he looks really small compared to all these. He's people. tiny. Yeah. How tall are you, Will? Uh, I am just barely six feet. Uh, oh wow! So. You're Hell tall. yeah, same. Yeah. See, I'm I'm Bob Dylan size. I'm five Evan, seven. Evan is Evan's a little sensitive about that. No, oh, I'm not well, because Bob I, Dylan's the same height. Hang <laughs> hang on. First of all, first of all, no judgment. That's okay. Good people come in all sizes. Oh, what a relief. Uh, I'm just I'm just saying that like I'm just saying that you know this guy Bob he's trying to do this thing where he like radiates cool he radiates this charisma mm-hmm. like a like clint eastwood basically yeah and i think i think he could have used a little bit more help from the cinematographer you know <laughs> he yeah he, he he looks petite there's that yeah. there's that one scene of him or there's several scenes of him and john goodman just like like talking in the trailer um, right. but there's that one where Bob is in the chair, kind of like leaned backwards, like Incredible. sideways with his legs up. Yeah. Like, like a child would sit in a chair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that was, that was just like an absolutely like, uh, like what am I watching here? Kind of moment. I, and I'm, I found myself thinking like that, that must've been a Bob decision to sit like that. Right. It's not like Larry Charles was like, you got to sit like this, Bob. It's like, that's just how he was sitting. And so that's how the scene went. I mean, that is the most extreme example, but the movie is full of just bizarre things that he's doing with his body. Like that early scene where he goes up to the bench that oh, Chief yeah. Marin is on. Incredible <laughs> sequence, he, by the way. Oh, I, yeah. One of my favorites. And like he puts his leg up on the bench and then he just kind of like leans forward. <laughs> I mean, I mean, what is he doing? It's incredible. An arresting screen presence. There are shades of... Uh... Some of that Buster Keaton, Jerry Lewis type of thing 
that flair, but they manifest just in moments like this. Like the, the, the part where he's sitting in that chair is kind of like uh, when Jerry Lewis is like sliding all over that office in that one mm. bit of his, there's, there's yeah. like a few little nods to that angle or like, you know, tramp like mannerisms. You know, it's funny. We were just talking in a recent episode about Dylan's first record and um, some little bit of uh, commentary that I dug up was apparently when Dylan would perform like in the really early days and just be doing these folk songs with his little cap on, um, somebody described these little mannerisms and tics he did as being very Chaplin-esque and mm. that he did a lot of these kind of like little bits and, uh, you know, mi- micro little routines that seemed very like... Uh, almost vaudevillian. Well, even in Don't Look Back, I think he's a much lighter presence than he right. is here. You know, you see him on stage and he's kind of joking a little bit. I don't know, something something around the era where he turned electric seems to have, you know, hardened him. Um, mm. and, and he hasn't been the same since. Yeah. Have you seen him in uh, in any of his other dramatic roles? I assume you've seen Pat Garrett, but um, like Hearts of Fire, for instance. Oh, man, no, I haven't seen Hearts of Fire, and I, I definitely want to. That's, um, a, that's a real masterpiece. It's all right. Yeah, I mean, I want <laughs> to, but it's to. also like trying to find the time to watch a movie that I just know is going to be bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, would not, we would not have watched it if we didn't have a stupid podcast no, to the, talk about it. The best part yeah. about that one is, is just when he, he punches Rupert Everett and it it looks like a raggedy Andy doll, yeah, looked, yeah, a marionette basically, just like having his arm pulled by the the string puller. Yeah, there's a scene like that in this one at the very end where he throws a punch at Jeff Bridges. <laughs> I love to see Bob Dylan throw a punch. Yeah, he's a real he's a real rough and rowdy character. The thing is, yeah. he could probably box us uh, to shit. He's a you know, ostensibly he's been. At that for a long time, he has. The I, I would, jam I would let him. You know, if he wants to beat me up, he can do it. He's earned the rights. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing that I think is different in this in this movie compared to some of Bob's previous uh, dramatic turns uh, is like he he does seem to be aware that he isn't really an actor. Like in Hearts of Fire, for instance, he he does seem to be kind of trying to be an actor, like like do it well. And in this in this movie, like he really seems to have internalized the idea that just like I'm going to be Bob Dylan and just sort of exist as a like a a sounding board or like a, a some sort of reflecting surface for all of these other actors to kind of like actually act against mm-hmm. but not really even try to bring any sort of dramatic quality to it himself. I guess if you want to be generous you could say that that's that's what he has always been in his career or right. especially what he was in the 60s this a blank canvas onto which people uh, projected a lot of ideas right. uh, and and they were disappointed when he turned out to not really be those things. So, I mean, obviously this movie is to some degree about the Bob Dylan myth. There's the Jeff Bridges character who's kind of like every bad journalist yeah, who has yeah. ever interviewed. It's a great performance, actually. Uh, I, I really yeah. think he nails it. Like, there are so many actual... Uh, terrible interviews with Bob Dylan that he seems to be like channeling directly in that, in that, especially in that scene when he's just like hounding Dylan in the trailer. Uh, Yeah. It's like pretty, pretty true. Do you get the impression that Jeff Bridges like really understands why those people fucking suck? 
<laughs> yes, yes, yes. I like that scene in No Direction Home where there's the one journalist who asks Dylan, like, how many how many protest singers are there? And he says, um, I think approximately 127. Yeah. <laughs> and there, there's that there's that pause. He says, approximately 127. He says, well, it's either that or 125. <laughs> uh, that's Bob. Um, we should also note uh, just how fucking stacked this cast is. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. And most people are very good in it, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, totally. yeah, the scenes where... Dylan is next to John Goodman, and Goodman is absolutely swinging for the fences. He's just oh, yeah. chewing John it up. Goodman's great, great. In- oh, dressed, yeah. dressed like Elliot Gould in Ocean's Eleven the entire time with this like seafoam blue suit and a ruffled kind of uh, like seventy, like the puffy shirt from Seinfeld almost. Yeah, you know that thing sometimes where like uh, if you're acting with somebody and and the energy level is lower you kind of feel the need to overcompensate. Right. I, I sense that like John Goodman felt that whenever he was on screen <laughs> with Bob Dylan, because you know, Goodman can be a big actor, but I don't think he's ever been bigger than he is here. Except yeah. perhaps in a, another film he did with co-star Jeff Bridges uh, a few years before this. Yeah. This is yeah. the spiritual sequel to Lebowski. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, did you have any other like favorite uh, characters, favorite moments? I enjoyed Val Kilmer as the kind of misanthropic animal guy, animal farmer. Yeah. Fantastic. Who just shows up like for two, like two scenes really. Like there's one long one where he's just kind of monologuing at Bob and then you see him come back a few minutes or I don't know, a little while later, but that's it. Um, but yeah, he's, he's fantastic. He's kind of all like straggly hair and he looks like a roadie um yeah but he's like taking care of animals and sort of musing poetically about like the nature of man and beast and stuff like that right um so that's great then you you have uh mickey rourke as like the president's Mm -hmm. uh second in command um he just looks like you know 2003 mickey rourke but he's like I forget he's wearing a suit or something. Yeah. I think he's got like a bolo tie and a ponytail. Right. Rourke, I think is the only actor who Dylan had a little bit of chemistry with. <laughs> this you is, know? this is telling perhaps uh, of something. Yeah. I don't know what two two real men. Yes. I really would love a tally, like a running list of celebs that Dylan likes. <laughs> yeah. That would be just like a good thing to reference and remind myself, like, do I need to care about this celebrity? Like does Bob Dylan like them? Well, apparently that's why there's so many, so many heavy hitters in this movie that is just, again, such a batshit insane movie and that was a complete commercial and critical failure uh, is because all of these people, when they heard they had the opportunity to work with Bob, they just jumped at it and I think just showed up for like union rates. Yeah, yeah. They they were just doing it for the chance. Just to hang out. Yeah. My favorite uh, in terms of uh, other... Uh, celebrity cameos besides Ed Harris, which we'll get to at some point, uh, is uh, Christian Slater as oh, yes, the uh, yeah. like the PA guy uh, who's there talking to um, Chris Penn. Uh, Chris Penn, exactly. The late, the late great Chris Penn. Late yeah. great Chris Penn, yeah. Um, and um, and and when we were first introduced to him, he's making this weird like, um, or actually not even weird, but like semi compelling like class reductionist argument or something. There's this there's this like this seething. Um, uh, tension of like like um, uh, 
some sort of like race based something is happening in this movie because the um the the network quote unquote the network uh, that is supposed to put on this show seems to be all run by people of color. Um, and, um, like all of the like guards and stuff that exist in the president's, um, uh, palace also seem to be people, people of color. Um, and, uh, but so Christian Slater shows up and is saying something like, you know, uh, race this race that it's all about class, man. Like I, th- there's no, there's no reason to get tied down in that kind of shit. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I thought it was interesting. Well, while we're on the subject of race, maybe we should talk a little bit about that Ed Harris scene where (laughs) where Ed Harris shows up as a ghost, basically, as, I guess, an old old showbiz friend of Dylan's father. As Al Jolson, basically. Yeah, Yeah. he he shows up in full immaculate blackface. (laughs) You want to come up with Uh, another, uh, maybe another adjective there, Will? uh, (laughs) uh, Oh, yeah. Well, immaculate, not... Yeah, immaculate, that's not... Not in terms of I'm not praising him, <laughs> no, no, folks. I, I know, um, but um, I, I mean, I don't really quite know what to do with this scene. Obviously, it's not a scene that would be in a movie today. But right. I think I think part of what the movie is doing is collapsing all of time and space. Mm-hmm. He is there, I guess, as some kind of um, ghost of show business past. All right. the all the concert scenes. Uh, bring together a lot of iconography from the history of show business and often a lot of low culture iconography, a lot of circus stuff, mm-hmm. uh, for instance. And I mean, I don't I don't really know what the point of it all is, but I think in the collapsing of show business history in those scenes, you know, I, I tried to think a little bit about the politics of this movie, about what the movie was saying mm-hmm. Uh, the way it collapses the history of show business, it also does the same with just the history of politics in general. So if the movie has uh, an idea, I wouldn't exactly call it a left-wing movie. I think it seems to be implying that no matter who comes to power, left or right, power is corrupting and we all end up in the same place. And all countries are the same. All wars are the same. Uh, You know, Time and space again is collapsed. So you have all of all of all of these icons. Like there's somebody dressed as the Pope, somebody dressed as Abraham Lincoln, somebody mm-hmm. dressed as Gandhi. Uh, there is no past. There is no future. It's all here in the soup. This is something that we've talked a lot about as we've gotten further and further down into late period Bob Dylan. But it's not even something that's specific to late period Dylan. This collapsing of all times and places and. Uh, even musical styles, um, mm. it becomes more and more uh, prevalent in, in in Dylan's music, more and more like a central motor of it. But I think, Ian, you said something that, um, like before we started recording a while ago, that this movie takes place within the um, Desolation Row extended universe. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it basically does, but uh, I go even further. I think this movie, you know, you can say it it feels as close as a movie can feel to a Bob Dylan song, but specifically like a Bob Dylan song from like the early 2000s. It feels like Bob Dylan's 115th dream come to life and put on a screen, basically, with Captain Ahab, you know, rolling into the Lower East Side of New York and like, you know, getting into hijinks in the kitchen and stuff like just all of these different cultural characters being collapsed into this completely nonsensical kind of dreamlike universe that still somehow 
Like you don't really know what it's saying, but you kind of get a, like a, like an emotional sense of honesty to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if there isn't like a factual truth behind it. Yeah. I, th- I think that's what it is. I think, uh, to embrace this movie, you have to do something similar to embracing those songs, which is just kind of like roll with it and let it wash over you exactly. and just, yeah, just, just kind of get a vibe from all these images being juxtaposed together. Now, I think it's probably easier to do with a song than it is with a movie. Right. But ne- nevertheless, I think this movie makes a valiant attempt. Uh, and, and yeah, I definitely, I was more sympathetic with this movie and what it was trying to do this time around. Yeah. One, one other note on the, uh, the Ed Harris character, I think, uh, just to jump back to that, you know, I, I think it's, um, it's significant to remember like what he's saying, which I don't have the actual notes down in front of me, but he's talking about when he shows up at the end, Bob is like, he, he's like an apparition that only Bob sees. Um, <clears throat> and he's talking about the fact that he, uh, he, as this, this retro entertainer had tried to speak truth to power or something, or like, um, you know, uh, go beyond his art and do something politically significant. And then he ended up getting killed for it. Um, and, uh, and so I think there's a lot of echoes between that and obviously like the position Bob found himself in as that protest singer in his early days, um, that he ends up moving away from when he goes electric, you know, like you talked about mm-hmm. earlier, Will. Um, and I, th- I, th- I think the, you know, the, <laughs> that striking visage yeah. of Ed Harris, uh, in blackface is, uh, is there to sort of signify or what I'm getting from it is like how antiquated a, co- a conception of an entertainer that really is. Um, you know, just seeing someone show up in blackface, even in 2003, which you can't even do anymore, uh, but would have been kind of a shocking, you know, antiquated kind of image. And so, um, so this idea of the entertainer or the artist as this political instrument that can affect change in reality, I think uh, it, 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 they're underscoring how out of touch and completely like nonsensical that is, uh, especially at this day and age. Yeah, I was listening to Adam Curtis on Chapo Trap House a couple right. of days ago, and he said that uh, he had this idea that the elites have let culture over the last 40 years become a daycare center. where The we whole thing all, with Tupac, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can all play act being radical while um, the elites are off busy uh, actually running the show. And I think this movie, this movie conveys that idea somewhat. The, the idea that actually lands in this movie more than any other idea is the cynicism it has towards celebrity activism. Mm -hmm. There's never any doubt that this benefit concert isn't actually going to produce any money. You know, it's, um, or I may have said that wrong, but the point is (laughs) the benefit concert is, is a sham. No one's lives are being changed by this stupid concert. Yeah, and they say pretty much explicitly in the dialogue that celebrities only do this as a brand-building exercise. Right. Uh, you know, the concert itself is kind of like waiting for Godot. It basically never happens. Yeah. <laughs> and Dylan himself, I'm sure, was heavily informed by his experience in the We Are the World music video. Which <laughs> oh. Iconic you, moment in Bob's yeah, history. Yeah, I mean, he, he is, I think, by a country mile, the most visibly uncomfortable one there. So he's yeah, not there I, though, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I definitely think that like, you know, that if there's one idea that I take away from this movie, it's, it's Bob and company. They aren't sure. Like they're cynical about politics, but they're even more cynical about their own ability to affect politics. Yeah. 
There's but yeah, it's it's a black pilled kind of thing. There, there's mm-hmm. some great lines in the movie. I mean, some of my favorite things about the movie are just these little throwaway lines that Bob has that seem to illustrate those points. It's like he's getting on the bus after uh, doing that weird uh, stance with Cheech, um, and they. Uh, they have this very, again, very like waiting for Godot esque exchange where he's like, uh, what way? Uh, he says something like Cheech is like, uh, that direction's good. Also, that direction's pretty good. And then uh, they have some more like weird, uh, obtuse, surreal dialogue. Bob gets on the bus and uh, he's like, is this going over the border? And the bus driver's like, no, you're going the wrong way. And then he's just uh, goes, all right. <laughs> and he gets on the bus. <laughs> and then later, uh, this woman approaches Dylan and the band and um, says, her, her, my daughter has memorized all your songs. And he goes, why would she do that? And it's this weird part where this little girl is singing like a very, uh, you know, like American Idol type audition vibe version of the times that are changing. Dylan just goes which by the way Roger Ebert praised I was just gonna say yeah yeah, I the the Ebert review I wanted to touch on momentarily which is just such dog shit and a complete misinterpretation of everything to do with Bob's entire life awful yeah (laughs) why why is it awful let's let's get into it well he gave it half a star which I believe he doesn't give zero stars right half a star is as as low as it goes he he does give zero stars but very rarely um hang on I'll I'll just uh pull up the Dylan review because he has something he like he is basically very disenchanted with Bob Dylan I think he a few years before that had revisited don't look back and he found Dylan a very unsympathetic character in it Hmm thought that he was excessively mean to that journalist at the end of the movie. Matt Farley shares this opinion. Matt Farley also had the same yeah. opinion. Right, right. And I, I get it, um, but at the same time... Would you uh, have it any other way? Come on. Yeah, like, I, w- I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't. no, yeah. It's, it's like one of the most also, iconic no, moments of pop Yeah, culture. nothing he says is wrong either. Like, yeah, he's exactly. just, no, it is yeah. just mean, kind of, but it's not wrong. Yeah. But he writes, uh, this is what Ebert writes, Bob Dylan idolatry is one of the enduring secular religions of our day. Those who worship him are inexhaustible in their fervor, and any and every in- enigmatic syllable of the great poet is cherished and analyzed as if it somehow conceals profound truths, uh, if only we could decrypt them. They would be the solution to, I don't know, maybe everything. Um Oh man, there's uh, there, there's there's uh, a part in here where he like makes fun of his voice. Yeah, he says perhaps Dylan's genius is to take simple ideas and make them impenetrable. Yes. Since he cannot really sing, there is the assumption that he cannot be performing to entertain us, and that therefore there must be a deeper purpose. That is such a snarky remark. Like that yeah, is that so... quote, as soon as I read that review, I, I screenshotted that quote and sent it to Evan, and was like, this this is fucking dog shit. Yeah. I hate this. I've so never much. seen you more mad, Ian. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm pissed <laughs> but ebert loves that little girl who i mean uh, to be fair is like a, a perfectly excellent child singer you know doing a very standard as you said american idol version of a bob dylan song but who you know, has he, by the way just very quickly grown up into a pop star her name is tanache uh evan i asked you about oh, this uh, so she that's went who to that our, is that's who that is she went to our high school oh uh, uh really? or he directed a music video for her previous what? um 
pop group. Yeah, I'll tell you about it later. We can cut some of this. But yeah, she is an international uh, R&B pop star, Tinashe. Oh. Oh, very interesting. Okay. Never mind. She's well, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I mean, I thought, I mean, to me, she was like, as good as she is, objectively, she's like the biggest false note in the yeah, movie. Yeah, well, it feels so wrong. I mean, especially the beginning of her little song. I mean, it just, it's so syrupy and um everybody i love there's a shot of john goodman's character just like staring with contempt at and confusion at her <laughs> and then it just goes like go, go along uh, mr fate has a lot to do at the end just f- hurries her off but man the bob dylan performances in this movie aren't Absolutely, they good yeah. well, the music is Peppered the other element that we haven't even yeah. talked about yeah, basically like- at, at seemingly arbitrary times throughout the whole picture there's these uh just great sort of interestingly shot performances of Dylan with the band doing mostly covers, but a lot of versions of his own songs too. Reinterpreted versions of his own stuff too. Yeah. Uh, I'll remember you, uh, for instance, uh, the great empire burlesque track. There's a fantastic version of that that just comes out of, out of nowhere. I didn't even recognize the song when I initially heard it. And then I was like, Oh shit, that's, that's from empire. Um, and, I think his apparently- version of Dixie is incredible. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, and that's, that's actually on the really soundtrack um, that you can listen to. There, Most of these uh, performances aren't, uh, like, there's no way to, to listen to them uh, besides just watching them in the movie. But there's a couple on the soundtrack. Will, did you have any other favorite, uh, even just music cue moments? Because there's a lot of great uh, non-performance musical moments as well. In a weird way, I kind of liked that. A bizarre version of like a Rolling Stone that plays when he gets out of prison. That weird remix. (laughs) I I was into it. Yeah, hip hop version. Yeah, 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 I liked it. And I mean, I also loved the version of "Blowing in the Wind" that plays in the end credits, which is Mm -hmm. like a more a more rousing version than the original. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, a a lot of good stuff. I mean, if nothing else, I think this movie gets a thumbs up just for the music. Yeah. yeah, there's tons of just like Bob Dylan, like in jokes and references throughout the entire thing, even with the music, music cues, like a bunch of songs that people aren't necessarily going to recognize, like the cover of Senor, for instance, yes, Senor. which I know thrilled both Evan and I, and Tales a, of Yankee Power. Sort of mariachi version of On a Night Like This. Um, mm-hmm. You get Blind Willie McTell, which is like this very um, coveted, uh, it's just a great like unreleased tra- album cut. Um that people really love people like, like you and me and Ian. Um, yes, the band and, uh, also is called simple twist of fate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a, as a Jack, the best Jack fate cover band cover band. And that was actually Bob's actual touring band at the time. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I love to hear the grateful dead version of, uh, it's all over now, baby blue. Um, mm-hmm. just like pop up for a second. I love that all of the music cues like this, there, there are so many little Easter eggs for like freaks and perverts like yeah. us. Another uh, great uh, electric version of Drifter's Escape. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Tuned up Which from has the- an incredible uh, sequence where John Goodman is talking to uh, Luke Wilson, who we haven't mentioned his character yet. Um, really weird character. But um, he, he just gives this uh, really pretty convincing sounding analysis of the song Drifter's Escape. Um, and of course, Penelope Cruz's character, who we also haven't met, she's fully in this movie, uh, she says, I love that all his songs are completely open to interpretation. Well, Ebert makes fun of that in his review because she says that when she's sitting between a guy dressed as the Pope and a guy dressed as Gandhi. 
right. where it's like, uh, if it's like, huh, it's, you know, that, that's, that's pretty egotistical, isn't it? And I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think we can assume that Bob and Larry Charles know that's funny. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they know what they're doing. Yeah. I wonder also like what, to what extent, uh, you know, cause Bob has a co-writing credit on this screenplay under a, under a false name, like Sergey something. Um, but the, the screenplay is co co credited to him and Larry Charles. I wonder to what extent he actually participated in the writing of the screenplay, or if it was basically just all these scraps of paper from his cigar box, and the rest of it was all Larry Charles. He went to the local Chinese food restaurant and got a whole bunch of fortune cookies, and he gave, <laughs> he gave them to Larry Charles and said, "Have at it." Here's that. Here's the picture somewhere in there. Just just put them together like puzzle yeah. pieces. But Larry Charles was under the impression that the scrapbook sort of method uh, is actually how Dylan writes a lot of his songs, which um, I think carries some water um, from what we know. That's probably true. At least earlier on in his career. Oh, I think it's later on is when that happened. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Later on now that like, like in the last, you know, 40, 40 years. Like, (laughs) yeah. In the later, because I I heard this, I read something where like Joni Mitchell, like made some kind of offhand remark, like not that long ago in the last 10 years or something like, Oh, Dylan hasn't like really written a song in ages. Like kind of maybe seeming to reference this sort of hodgepodge approach that Dylan has, Mm. but um, Hey, it works. Um, One just last thing that I wanted to, uh, to make sure to cover is the ending and what to make of it. Cause that like, uh, I, maybe there isn't anything to make of it at all, but, uh, I, I found myself kind of confused about what to take away, uh, at the end, especially the way that Bob's character seems to react to things. Uh, so, so very briefly, you know, the movie, um, or the, this concert finally takes place. Um, Bob is playing a live version of cold irons bound, which is fantastic. Um, but right as that's happening, the president, uh, dies, Mickey Rourke assumes command and kind of unleashes this wave of violence and retribution against this other rebel army uh, and sort of takes over as an autocratic strongman. Um, and so at the, uh, at the command center, um, uh, uh, after the performance has taken place, um, Tom Friend, show, Jeff Bridges shows up, starts a Tom, Tom Friend. friend. Uh, not much of a friend at all, ironic. Um, uh, starts accosting John Goodman, um, and then uh, Bob comes to his rescue, kind of pushes him back, and yeah, very, very convincingly throws a punch. Luke Wilson shows up, mm-hmm. and um, uh, then ends up, uh, or no, Tom Friend pulls a gun on Bob. Luke Wilson then shows up and beats him to death with a guitar, um, uh, blind, blind um, lemons, blind guitar. lemons guitar. Who's an actual? Who's an actual guy who Bob covered on the cover records. Um, and, um, and then some sort of group of soldiers shows up, uh, and then who tells them that Bob did it? Is it Jessica Lang? I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah. Who also is in it. We haven't even mentioned. Um, and they take him away. He's arrested and he's driven out in the back of this cab or the, the back of this van, but he seems to be kind of like smiling to himself. Yeah, he's like at peace. Yeah. It's um, like he's seen the, the, the way that the world is uh, out here now, and he's ready to go back into prison. Back to prison, I guess, yeah. Well, it's interesting that the Luke Wilson character is basically supposed to be the young Bob Dylan, yeah. the, the young idealist folk singer version of Bob Dylan, who for some reason is occupying space and time uh, with the current Bob Dylan. I mean, I really 
I guess, un, uh, cynical reading of it would be that, uh, Bob, uh, the, the young Bob was always kind of a sham. He was never mm. a man of peace. And the older Bob is comfortable admitting that now. Mm. Um, I don't know. Maybe you guys have another interpretation. Yeah, no, I, I think I, uh, th- that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I think it's significant that, that, um, like the, the most satisfying elements of it to me, at least was that, that Jeff, uh, Jeff Bridges gets murdered by one version of Bob. There's, there's almost this like power fantasy. I think I see in that this like cloying, obnoxious fucking reporter who's going on and on at him Mm -hmm. all the time, uh, ends up, ends up finally getting done in because of his own kind of malfeasance or obnoxiousness. Like if he wasn't there in the first place, he wouldn't have been beat to death with the guitar. Um, uh, but he was, and he was trying to chase the story. Um, but, um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, and then it's just kind of like, and then that's it. Like, it's a very kind of downer, like, like low key ending. There's no great resolution to this massive, like conflict that's taking place in the background. This movie also doesn't feature any kind of, uh, there's not a lot that gives you like a sense of the bigger world. It all kind of feels pretty self-contained, even though there's a lot implied about what's going on in the, in the world and across the the country. Um, Most of it is kind of left to just being alluded to with the exception of a few little hints of like the outside forces at work, Um, which, which I just found to be something that is striking about like the, the feel and the scope of the movie. That's something else that I actually feel more in sympathy with this movie on, uh, after being in lockdown for a year, right? Uh, Because it feels like so much has happened over the last year. Uh, and, but I've just been in this room basically. And it it (laughs) feels, it feels so abstract, so disconnected. Uh, so I, so, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to heavy handedly say that this movie was prescient in any way. That's definitely something I'm projecting onto it. But well, it also features a, a president who's barely clinging to life, which is you know, <laughs> feels yeah. pretty relevant somehow. Uh, good point. Well, yeah, any any last uh, last thoughts on uh, the great Mass Anonymous from either of you guys? I, I have a good quote from Larry Charles um, and Bob, respectively. Uh, what do you got? So apparently, when they were hashing out how to make this film and. Um, going over some of the possible dialogue um, could have been early on, you know, when they were still planning to do the Buster Keaton, Jerry Lewis thing. Um, Dylan wanted there to be some line about a pig wearing a wig. (laughs) And apparently uh, Larry Charles said, you know, this, even in this project, this wouldn't make sense. And uh, Bob Dylan (laughs) said, uh, what's so bad about misunderstanding? I mean, he's right as always. Nothing wrong with uh, not not answering all the questions for folks. Take that, Roger. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, well, uh, I believe it might be time then. Uh, Will, I don't know if you're aware, but we uh, we have a very scientific rating system of our own here on Jokerman Podcast. Um, the the three star rating system, and you don't get half stars like Ebert. You get one, two, or three, or zero if you're pissed, but mostly one, two, or three. So. Uh, so do we have any, any three-star ratings for Mass and Anonymous here at the end? Gosh, I mean, I'm tempted to give it three stars, but I also feel like if we're, if we're rating things on a curve, like obviously Highway 61 Revisited has to be three, and this is not as good as that. So I'm going to have to give it – I'm going to give it two. This is, this is always the question. <laughs> two stars. 
that's totally fair. But for me, this being a movie and this being a certain type of movie and for what it is, I feel like three stars here to me means that something really was attempted and really uh, was tried. And it's basically not like anything else. So I, I, I'll give it three stars for, for just out of respect, I guess. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with you, Evan. This is uh, this is an undeniable three star picture to me. Uh, like I just like I ask myself, what do I want out of Bob as a movie star or as an actor or something? And like I can't ask for anything else than this like weird fucked up version of Los Angeles, this post apocalyptic like fable about the direction that things are heading that's twenty years ahead of its time. Um, uh, all of these great performances that Bob is giving, uh, just this uncanny kind of uh, like acting that he's not even really attempting, but just doing naturally. Um, and in, in 2003, uh, no less, you know, that this weird moment in time in his career and in, uh, in, in the greater culture. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a completely like sui generis one of one kind of movie. Like there, I can't imagine any other person, uh, or even pair of people, including Larry Charles being able to come up with something like this. So it's uh, three stars. All right, guys, you've convinced me. I'm bumping it up. Bumping hey. it up three stars. Yeah, let's Hell do yeah. it. All right, great. It. That's three for three. Um, you know, one one other quote from the film itself that I thought was great and maybe is a little pertinent here is that uh, uh, you, this is still Bob Dylan, you know. You're getting a Bob Dylan motion picture. And uh, one of the quotes here from the film that stuck with me was, all the songs are recognizable, even when they're not recognizable. And uh, that's kind of how this feels uh, as, a, as a viewer. Mm-hmm. Well, um, thanks for joining us. Well, this was a fantastic chat. Uh, can't, I, I truly cannot think of someone better to talk about this insane movie. Uh, than, <laughs> than you. Well, thanks very much. I had a great time, and uh, thanks for thanks for giving me an excuse to watch it again because I was I was very pleasantly surprised and blown away how much I enjoyed it this time. Great, I'm Fantastic. so glad to hear it. Mm-hmm. Thank you again, Will. Until next time, get yourself some hot popcorn. Purchase masked and anonymous and become the fifth person to watch this movie. Jokerman. Beautiful. Shirokakuroshika あの
金をくれ金をくれと言う青空が僕に無理やりのんきさを要求する僕をホワイト言ってくれた友人もはるか思い出の中ああの頃の僕より今の方がずっと若いさあああの頃の僕より今の方がずっと若いさ